Hello and welcome to the Archives Are Incomplete. I am Jonah and today we will be discussing The Cestus Deception by Stephen Barnes along with the bonus The Hive also by Stephen Barnes. Let's buckle in because it's going to be a bumpy ride. As always we're going to start with the back of the book. When the economically depressed government of Ord Cestus threatens to sell incredibly deadly battle droids to the Separatists, Supreme Chancellor Palpatine dispatches a team led by Jedi Knight Obi-Wan Kenobi to the planet. Their mission, to halt the deal. A peaceful resolution is preferable, but if all else fails, the Republic will not hesitate to demonstrate the consequences of disloyalty by launching a full-scale attack, wiping out not only the means of biodroid production, but countless lives as well. The prospect of such a slaughter only fuels Obi-Wan's growing suspicions about the sinister path the Republic seems to be taking. Facing a crisis of conscience, Obi-Wan must find the wisdom and strength to prevent a bloodbath and safeguard the Republic, while abiding by the ancient code to which he has pledged his life. So, it's mostly accurate, but we don't really dive as much into Obi-Wan's perspective as it suggests we do. Also, completely forgets to mention the perspectives of Kit Fisto and Nate or Arc 98 A98 Alpha 98 whatever his name is um we'll get into his name later on cuz I have opinions anyways should you read this i'm trying to figure out how to say no but politely i guess it's worth reading if you're like a Kit Fisto fan because he doesn't really appear in any other books and there are better stories involving, like, clones or Obi-Wan or insectoid alien races. The portrayal of the clones in this book strike me as very different than in all the other books that they've shown up. Most They're most like the clones in Equipment, the bonus from Shatterpoint, which I also didn't enjoy. They're also... It's not just that they're divergent from the clones in the other books, but they're divergent, in my opinion, from the clones in the shows and the movies and literally every other piece of media I've engaged with. They, they just, there's a whole lot that I don't think makes sense in this book. Um, there's also a relationship that's written into the story, and it feels just kind of cramped in and doesn't fit. Anyways, what are we going to talk about? As always, going to talk about the plot, then dip into the relationships between the clones and the Jedi, as we so often do in these times. I have a few nits to pick, and then I'll finish up with a few fun details and go over the hive as well so to really begin let's start with the plot like with a lot of the other clone war stories there are a few main threads a few different like main zones of action that we bounce around between but these are pretty tightly intertwined to start obi-wan goes to see a droid demonstration on a course on sponsored by palpatine the droid a jk model aka jedi killer uh, is able to relatively easily defeat a clone trooper, aka CT-36-732, also known as Surti. In round two, it almost holds off Kit Fisto, who is a Jedi Master. I don't believe he's a member of the Council, but he was part of the arrest group that went after Palpatine later on. Um, he's known for his combat skill, among others, but the droid fails. Obi-Wan needs to go to Ord Cestus. Uh, so, okay, so you've maybe heard of Ord Mantell, or Ord Fanthal, or another Ord. Well, apparently, Ord is a planetary prefix meaning Ordnance slash Regional Depot, and there are about 60 of them scattered throughout the galaxy. It's from way earlier in the Republic's history when, like, planets were still being named and colonized. Anyways, 
Obi-Wan needs to go there to negotiate with the leaders and try to get them to stop making the droids so the Republic can be happy. They're technically a part of the Republic, but that hasn't stopped anybody separating, because that's what Separatists do. Ord Sestis was a prison planet until some of the prisoners, who were executives there for fraud, discovered valuable resources required for high-quality droid manufacture, went to the guards and wardens, and founded Sestis Cybernetics. Now, the five families that run Sestis Cybernetics have the most of the power on the planet. The regent of the Zting Hive, which is one of the many native species, is mostly a figurehead despite theoretically having precedence and title. The royals died about 150 years before this story takes place when a plague swept the planet because prisons are rife with disease and it's possible, read, likely, that Cestus cybernetics enhanced the strain that wiped out 90% or more of this thing. I don't know how to pronounce that. It's X apostrophe T-I-N-G and it's an alien race, so I'm going to give it my best shot. Zating! As backup... Kit Fisto and four clones are going to make contact with Desert Wind, a terrorist group. Hey, kind of like the Coronai, who are fighting back against Cestus Cybernetics. They do have legitimate grievances, like the Coronai, but if the Republic can get what they want from the Corporation, they're not going to support the terrorists. They're going to support the Corporation that suppresses people. The clones are led by ARC Trooper Alpha 98, a.k.a. Nate, the troopers 36-732, CT-44-444, and CT-12-74 are the other three troops. They're alternatingly titled ARCs, Commandos, and Troopers, so I don't really know what they are. Wait, no, there's also X-270, X-2. I honestly forgot about him and kind of thought he was an R2 unit. The clones are not particularly well developed in this story. Anyways, they make contact with Sheikah Tull, an on-planet smuggler who will put them in contact with Desert Wind. There's a short little thread earlier where Nate is going through, like, some training, and it's terrible, and I have complaints about that later on in the analysis part. Uh, anyways, Obi-Wan begins negotiations with the Regent Gamai Duris and the Five Families. He's helped by Barrister Dulb Snoil, a Vipit. Vipits are oversized sapient snails. They can actually read two documents at the same time, one with each little eye stalk, and then when they sleep, their mind just merges, melds the two together. It's that, like, that's neat physiology, and I don't know if that's reasonable or practical in any way. Anyways, Obi-Wan reaches out to Trillo, a Zating crime queen. As a note, Zating have a three-year transformative cycle where they change their sex regularly with the transformation over the course of a few months. So for three years, they will be either male or female. Then over the course of a couple months, transition from one gender to the other and be fertile. There's also pretty significant sexual dimorphism in Zating, with male forms being more suited to manual work and combat. And so there's some actual changes that occur and it's interesting i wish it was explored a little bit more but sting are mostly a side aspect of this story anyways trillo is under the guidance of asajj ventress who unlike her master dooku who's on the cover of the book actually shows up and plays a part in the story even if i think it's poorly constructed and limited but i'll talk about that later uh trillo 
or sorry, Obi-Wan gets the original contracts, and Duel finds that the owners of Cestus Cybernetics intentionally purchased the land from the Hive using synthetic crystals, which is fraud, so the Hive has legal footing to claim all the factories on what was previously their land. Before he can deliver that information, Regent Gamai Duris, who has requested Obi-Wan's help in general and wants to work with the Republic, is challenged to a duel by Quill, a member of both the Hive Council, a sort of parliamentary system, and the Five Families. Quill has previously killed Gamai Durs's husband or partner in a similar duel uh, months or years previous, and so she's somewhat concerned. With some advice from Obi-Wan, she goes into the duel and wins. It's kind of a really weird scene, because she's prepared to die to kill Quill. That's the advice that Obi-Wan gave her. He's like, okay, if you know you're going to lose, make sure that the other person dies too. Um, and somehow Quill picks up on that and surrenders, like... There's no actual clash. He just walks around her, sees that she isn't surrendering or attacking, and is like, you know what? I quit. I surrender. Like, she didn't say anything. She didn't do anything. He's, he, Quill, has been in duels before, and I don't understand. Like, he goes in very cockily. He's like, yeah, I'm going to wipe the floor with you. And so I guess when she doesn't react in the way he expects, he gets freaked out and quits. But that, like, that doesn't hold with his character. His character is very aggressive and overconfident and so it would make more sense for him to go in and get himself and the regent killed but that would ruin the rest of the story so instead he just surrenders i guess i don't know anyways regent gamai duris then spills the beans to the council about the legality of the contract which pushes them in the direction of the republic there's also a little tangent here that this is the scene where we have the story of the hive take place um where Obi-Wan helps the Hive out in some pretty significant ways. However, this isn't enough somehow, and the Jedi need to take more drastic measures. Again, uncertain why this, which is shared as, like, a linchpin, isn't enough. It's more realistic. What you thought was key to a diplomatic exchange isn't, but narratively, it's disappointing. It's a big moment with absolutely zero payoff. We get several scenes building up to okay we're going to be able to find the original contracts okay we're going to be able to find something in the contracts okay we found something in the contracts okay how are we going to share it we've shared it with the regent the regent has shared it with the council okay and that's not enough it just falls flat and that's not the only time we have that sort of build up build up build up and then nothing it's just frustrating like while reviewing this story I knew that this moment came up and I wanted to see where the hive was, like where the story, the hive started. And I had to go through the book like a half dozen times to even find the moment where it's revealed to the council, because that's one, the last time it comes up and two, it's like half of a page of content. It just is meaningless and it is barely touched upon in the short story, the hive as well. It's just not explored at all they just go to straight extreme actions which we'll talk about in a second because while this has been happening kit fisto and the clones have made contact with desert wind and have started to go around to farming and mining villages and recruiting for their insurrectionist army that they might not use you know kind of like gaftakar or Kalura. nate has been mostly flirting with chica toll their contact it's almost painful it's just not good. Anyways, 
As the five families proceed to a meeting, they're ambushed and kidnapped by a mysterious light whip wielding bandit Natolan. Natolan's being the race that Kit Fisto is. I wonder who that masked bandit is. Anyways, Obi-Wan, called by the regent to help, uses the force to track them down and goes off to fight said bandit. They have some really canned dialogue, which is fine, because I guess Obi-Wan and Kit are supposed to be bad actors, which makes sense. And Obi-Wan, well, I mean, Obi-Wan has done a lot of infiltration and is a decent enough actor. They don't need to add, like, the holodrama flair. Like, they're like, I finally found you, evildoer. I shall put a stop to you. And it's, oh, you got away again. How dare you, I'll track you. Like, it's just, like, so bad and i guess like it sells it to the people but like you didn't need to have a backstory you just could have been like who are you what are you doing i'm gonna yeet you out of here and interrogate you later on my own or something i don't know um the five families sing obi-wan's praises and it is still not enough they do push things a little bit more there's more negotiation etc etc and they're at the signing of an agreement between Cestus and the Republic when Quill, who notably was one of the people or Zatang saved by Obi-Wan, comes in with footage of the rescue showing that it was all or mostly staged. The footage comes from an unknown source and it's never revealed how it happened. It's like a camera shot from outside of the ambush site and I, it's just never nothing ever is discussed about it and it's just another super frustrating narrative moment it's very convenient from the author's perspective because it creates you know this tension and puts a stop to this win condition right the story's about to end obi-wan's about to seal the deal and go home and everybody's gonna be happy and then nope never mind we have to continue the story and we have to escalate things and that makes things better for stephen barnes and the story that he's telling but it is narratively unsatisfying because there it's just out of nowhere we have no there's no conversation anywhere of this being set up there's no mention of cameras being that area it's ugh. obi-wan is kicked out because he has failed in his job as an ambassador he has to leave and he takes his ship along with barrister dual snoil and apparently the clone x270 who isn't an r2 unit whoops uh as soon as possible obi-wan bails out of the ship in uh escape vessel so he can continue the commando missions with kit doing a low orbital entry and escape pod or shuttle or something along those lines ventress though believes obi-wan is still on the ship and has her own starfighters attack that vessel and snoil has to eject but is found by desert wind before the zating incestus cybernetics the clone x270 is dead oh no they don't really like cover his death they just mentioned that he i don't even think they mentioned he dies that's why I thought he was an R2 droid. They just, you know, treated him like a droid. Anyways, Obi-Wan, Kit, and Desert Wind launch several raids and begin to terrorize the government. Apparently, they think that being a terrorist organization will help their cause or something. Eventually, the government turns to the Separatists, and particularly Asajj Ventress, for help, which is, you know, kind of super predictable. I don't know why the good guys thought terrorism would get result when their enemy just wants an excuse to bring troops to the planet. Anyways, Ventress pulls the same trick that Obi-Wan did and uses the Force to figure out where the threat is and sends droids to the secret base of Desert Wind. The droids arrive and really screw things up, you know, murdering a lot of people. They're partying because of some successful mission where they terrorized the government of the planet. 
Thak Valsing, a history professor turned guerrilla leader, is drunk and in the back of the caves when the droids come out. He's apparently a coward, despite, you know, having chosen to give up a life of relative prosperity to become a guerrilla leader. He doesn't call out an alarm because he's scared, and so the Desert Wind are massacred. We lose Snoil in a comic death, which is, again, like, super disappointing. He dies saving Obi-Wan, which is good and, like, dramatic, and a stalactite falls on him, piercing his shell, and he starts to die. He dies in Obi-Wan's hands, asking that Obi-Wan make sure that his family receive full combat bonus, untaxed. Like, he's talking legalese, it's not an emotional plea. And I, I mean, actually thinking about it, like, I mean, it fits his, it doesn't even fit his character. Like, his character, I was going to be like, yeah, it fits his character, because his character really likes law and stuff like that, and it's all about contracts. And yes, Duel Snoil does really like law and contracts, but throughout the story, throughout his interactions with Obi-Wan, he does show an emotional, you know, side. And in this final moment, he's just like, no, I am all about the rules. I am a caricature of myself. Plus, Obi-Wan has enough time after Duel dies in, this, in the middle of this massacre to quip about his greatness. It's like, he was a great friend and a great barrister and I'm gonna, like, nobody's there to listen to it. Why? This is not a holodrama. This is written like a holodrama and it's really frustrating. Nobody else of importance dies. Nobody else of note dies. Nate is injured and rescued by Shikatol. Obi-Wan and the clones are all fine. Kit is fine. All of the various named members of the Desert Wind we know survive. Resta, who's as a Ting, uh, own son or something like that, who's like the youngest member of the Desert Wind survives. Thak Val Singh survives. Like, there are no consequences other than Dulbs Noil dies and they have to scatter. Um, it's really weird. Like, everybody, like Kit and Obi-Wan and the clones, all have the thought after they regroup of, wow, we had terrible operational security. And you know, they've been involved in a war for a year or more now. They do know better. There's no given explanation for why they made so many compounding flawed security decisions. It wasn't like somebody leaked their location. It's that they had a undefensible location, didn't have a backup plan, didn't have an escape route, didn't, like, thin out their, like, spread out their resources so they couldn't all be taken out at once. They didn't have security on one, like... Just nothing. They had absolutely nothing. And, ugh. Anyways. Uh, Nate spends some time, like days or weeks, recuperating in a village. He's shown to the Dashta eels toward the end of the state. I haven't mentioned the Dashta eels yet, but they're important. They are uh, force-sensitive, non-sapient, simply sentient who guide the people of Cestus. They might be sapient, they just haven't communicated directly with anybody, so I don't know. Um, but they guide some of the people of Cestus by providing them resources and knowledge in the form of being like, hey, here's a fungus, you should eat it, it's really good. Uh, it's a super medicine slash super food. It's a Mary Sue of food. Anyways, um, they are the intelligence behind the JK droids, the Jedi Killer droids. Because of their force sensitivity, they're able to better predict the movements of their enemies. However, in this scene, in this village, Nate also spends more time with Sheikah, 
her children and gets lucky with her. Uh, Shika previously had a relationship with the Django Fett small galaxy and sees a lot of Django innate. She gives him a real name, Django Tat, meaning brother of Django, which is kind of weird because he has a name, Nate, and he's more Django's son than brother, but I guess she wants to pretend that he's her dead ex's brother instead of son. Yeah. Anyways, a big attack is planned. Destroy the water supply to a major manufacturing city. And then the natives will have to capitulate to the demands. That's very reasonable. Obi-Wan and Kit go in to force action to happen. If they don't succeed, Palpatine is apparently going to carpet bomb the planet. I don't know. I don't get it either. I know I'm doing a poor job explaining this, but I, I don't get it. Uh, they go in but they are captured by Ventress. She's going to take them to Dougal and cackle like a cartoon villain. Nate, or Django Tat, I'm just going to call him Nate for consistency at this point at least, disobeys orders and leaves the caves. Um, any link between the Republic and the terrorism would look bad, and so the Jedi are like, you guys stay here. Terrible. Of course, then two Jedi go in and get captured, so there's pretty clearly a link between the Republic and this terrorism. Anyways, uh, Nate thinks he knows where the five family are, and he intends to take them hostage or something. He goes there with Thakval Singh and Resta, who's a Zating member of the Desert Wind. Uh, they're guiding him in. And he thinks he knows... So yeah, he thinks he knows where the five families are. He gets there and fights a Jedi killer droid and is seriously wounded in the process. Thakval Singh dies trying to damage the JK droid by suicide bomb, which does no physical harm to the droid. Uh, Django Tat, or Nate, calls in bombardment on himself rather than the water supply, which is a good thing because Ventress aimed it towards civilian buildings, although losing the purified water supply for a city of hundreds of thousands would also be devastating. I mean, not as directly devastating as, like, blowing up civilian apartments, but... Neither of those is good. Uh, anyways, the bombardment destroys the five families and weakens the force field around Obi-Wan and Kit Fisto. I don't get it either. Uh, the commanding officer of the capital ship is Eric Hakun Baraka, who's a Mon Calamari who hates clones. He had a 2% casualty rate in training missions, which he ran regularly, with a starting number of 50,000 clones. That's a thousand dead in any given mission. Uh, he was going to bombard a city with no confirmation. I don't find him a compelling or enjoyable character at all. Like, if you compare him to Val or Arlegan Zay, characters who make difficult calls, they we actually get to see them make consideration, not just be randomly anti-clone and just like, I'm, yeah, I'm a terrible person. Beyond that, um, like, how did he get from being a training officer to being in the middle of a war zone? Never explained. Okay. Cool, that's fine, I guess. Once freed, Kit and Obi-Wan have to fight off several Sestians, uh, mostly Zatang. They have to do it non-lethally because they're innocent and don't deserve to be killed, even though both Obi-Wan and Kit Fisto have killed some number of guards in their terrorist actions who were just doing their job, so this is yet another thing that I don't get. Then they fight off Ventress and get to the point where they're both able to retreat, but neither is able to grasp victory. 
turns out everything in the story has been a lie. Trello has been lying to Obi-Wan the whole time. The original contract is a lie. The Dashta eels wouldn't function on the battlefield because they couldn't stand killing because they're healers, which only Nate knows out of the Republic forces. I don't understand how Dooku put in order for hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of droids without actually testing, you know, the use case of the droid killing something. Like, they demonstrated guard functions non-lethally, but it is far from being outside of Dooku's realm to be like, yep, I'm going to use this to, I don't know, execute a prisoner or something. Like, that's very justifiable in his world, and I'm surprised that he didn't try it. Or, like, Order 5 to put them on a battlefield and try them out in live conditions against clones and be like, is this going to work? Because clearly the Republic already knows about them. Test them out. Find out that they don't actually work. And then this whole thing gets avoided. Oh, right, that's why it didn't happen. That's why the characters acted stupid, because it's convenient for the plot. Oh, and Shikatol is pregnant, so that makes Nate's death worthwhile or something. I don't get it either. Okay, so <laughs> clearly, clearly I have some feelings about this story. I'm going to start with the right proper rants and then get into the meatier parts of the story and analysis. Starting with the clones. I, you know that I like clones. I like care about the clone army. I care about the Grand Army of the Republic. I think that they're interesting characters. I can't stand the clones in this book. Like, the names of the clones are just their numbers. 98, Nate. 44444, 40. 36, 732, 30. For 36 and 32. Uh... 1274 C4 I don't know like there's definitely the four in there like when a clone picks a name why wouldn't they pick I don't know an actual name like oh, all the clones in the clone wars excepting fives I guess so four is kind of acceptable but like short for 32 and 74 an amalgamation of 98 to make Nate Obi-Wan who has worked extensively with Cody and Rex and other named troopers doesn't seem to think this is a problem and yes this is like way too small of a detail to be super frustrated with but i like clones and this kind of feels like it undermines their story also nate recruited surdy explicitly because of his ex experience with the jk droids he was the one who fought against one of the jk droids before kit fisto did anything and you'd think that that would come up like it's a nice little chekhov's gun but really the existence of the clones in the story is to support nate Surdy, Fori, and C4 do nothing the whole time, and X270, who's name X2, Zutu, I think it's X-U-T-O-O, -O, Zutu, I don't know. He doesn't do anything except die, so, like, they, they're all meaningless characters. They're props. Uh, Nate only really flirted with Shikatol and didn't do anything in the story other than die at the end, which is because he was able to achieve, like, the ability to understand that, like, sometimes you might not have to fully obey orders, and, like, sometimes you have information that somebody else doesn't, and you can make your own decisions, and you're a free man, Nate! Go get yourself killed now! They just don't feel like characters. Like, they're supposed to be there for the character development of other characters, like Obi-Wan and Kit, but nobody really grows because of them. People continue to have bad opinions of clones throughout the whole story. There's, like, a ton of faux depth. At the beginning of the story, Obi-Wan looks at Surdy, uh, talking with Kit, after the fight with the droid. And he's like, oh, I thought I had met him before. But then I realized I was being foolish. I've met every one of them. 
Like, what? No, you have not met every one of them. There are millions of them. They're actually different people. You're just treating them all the same because that's easy for you, so you can justify your slave army. But, like, that's wildly out of character for Obi-Wan. Like, does any outsider really know them? Obi-Wan thinks, like, what the crap? You know they're different. You've talked to them. You're friends with Cody and Rex, and you know that they're different. That Cody is more like you, and Rex is more like Anakin, because those are the officers they work with. And you fought with the 501st and the 182nd and all of these units, and you know clones are different, but you're like, oh no, I've met one, met, a, met one, met them all. Like, that's... Now you're pretending... I mean, they are all genetically the same and physically the same, but mental, they have different lived experiences. They are different people. That's the entire point of the Republic Commando series. We even see it in equipment in Shatterpoint. Like, the clones have different lived experiences. They are individuals, and that's very objectifying of clones it's trying to be deep and insightful but it isn't towards the end of the book obi-wan feels a special pain when he learns that nate is missing presumed dead more so than other clones because he formed a bond he's uncertain why he has this special pain it's because he talked with nate and treated him like a human being and didn't treat him like an object when somebody you know dies or is missing you feel something that's normal obi-wan also, like, the canned banter from the clones is rough. Like, there's a lot of canned banter in the Republic Commando series. There's a ton of banter, and I really like it. I'm 100%. Arc speak for perfect. Like, that's that's not arc speak. That's, that's just... Yeah, if you said I'm functioning at 100%, I would have assumed you meant, you know, you were functioning perfectly. Like, you know... 100% a perfect score. And then they're like, ah, 10% is arc speak for very not good. It's like, yeah, I I haven't gotten a 10% on a test before, but if I had gotten 10% on a test, that's very not, like, you don't have to, like, that's not something secret. It's not, like, tinnies or wet droids, like, those are pieces of slang from Republic Commando, tinnies being, you know, droids made out of tin there or clankers that's another one because they clank everywhere like they're explainable not just like standard english and like also arc speak why not slang i think uh, it's just oh i don't i boy yeah also there's a comment about how on one of his early missions on geonosis i think he saved some other troops that earned him free food and rapid promotion Clones don't have money, so of course his food was free. Also, all they get is, like, dry rats, so it's not super exciting. I mean, the one thing that Stephen Barnes does get about clones correct is he really nails the fact that they like food. Like, he, the every other scene, if Nate isn't flirting with Sheikah Tull, he's talking about food. And you know what? That is... At least that part of the character, the deep infatuation with experiencing new foods, that is very clone and feels correct. But, like, there are just so many points like this that don't fit the rest of the canon that made this a really jarring read. I know I said I was going to rant, but it'll be more of the same sort of nitpick, so I'm going to try to go on to one other quick rant and stop whining about the literary mistreatment of clone troopers and then move on with some genuine analysis. So, okay, no, I can't. So, at the beginning of the story, Nate is like, oh yeah, I've never met Django. 
Okay, but like all of the advanced recon commandos were trained by Django. Did you just like learn everything from? How did you learn your stuff? Of, I I mean, God, he of uh, that's why he thinks it's really clever to use a hundred percent as to mean perfect and needs God. It's clear that he's never spoken with a sentient being before. He's just spoken with computers. That's it. Like, there's a part where Obi-Wan sees the clones sparring and thinks it speaks to advanced training, that they have this knowledge and ability. What do you think the word advanced means in advanced recon commander? Do you think it means, like, basic or standard? Okay, no. Done with the clones. Done with the clones. Well, kind of. Because uh, my, my other complaint is the relationship between Sheikah Tull and A-98. Nate. Alpha-98. It's just so tropey. Sheikah is the soft-hearted woman of the world who understands things, and Nate is the rough and tough man who doesn't understand his feelings. Like, she's like, don't be so blasted literal, I'm trying to talk to you. Why don't you listen to me? It's just, like, I've heard that in bad sitcoms. It's just not great writing and then like when she's talking about her ex she uh Django, she's like he was honorable and brave and a great obvious beat pause fighter a sh- and like you're a shadow of the best best fighter i ever knew it seems like she's headed towards lover in both of those situations but we're trying to keep the story pg or something even though we later have a guy strap a bomb to his chest and throw himself in a droid and die for no reason and, like, later, she has, like, a bunch of interactions with Nate where she's just like, I don't, I'm using an idiom or a metaphor and you don't get it. And so, later she asks, what do you think, Nate, regarding the recruits that they've brought in for the Desert Wind? And he, quote, felt confident to intuit her meeting. Well, yeah, I mean, what do you think doesn't mean explain all of your thoughts in the world. So, I guess, props on the tippity-top cream-of-the-crop trooper to understand that? These are supposed to be the best in the brain. Like, maybe Alpha Arcs are pure Django, and he had zero spare brain cells. I just... I mean, there's another line where Sheikah's just like, you're just the man for the job, talking about all four clones at once. And in Republic Commando, it'd be funny. It'd be hilarious. But here, it just kind of made me go, that's I don't like that. And I think it's because it feels like the author doesn't really understand clones. And so, like, while that one joke lands, it's surrounded by this forest of jokes that just miss. And so that one is just worse. And, like, I don't see why the relationship exists. With Attain and Darmin, we see their bond forged in the discomforts and trials of Quillura. They have to rely on each other and trust each other to survive. They're both learning how to fight on their own with each other, right? Like, Attain is becoming a commander, and Darman is figuring out what it means to be without his brothers. And that's where the bond builds. Like, it doesn't have significant narrative purpose for the first, like, book and a half. Like, it's not... There's no plot that comes out of it. It's just character dynamics, which, to be fair, great. But there's a reason for it narratively. Like, they're... It just seems like Nate is interested in Sheikah because she's hot and talks to him or something. And she's into him because he looks like her now-dead ex. That doesn't seem like a great 
makes for the start of a relationship. Also, okay, this is really weird. When they kiss, they eventually kiss on page of like 5,000 or whatever. Nate compares her to other women he's kissed. He's kissed multiple other women, despite, you know, living in a barracks that's comprised solely of clones of himself. I just don't buy it. Anyways. Anyways. Re-anti time over. Analysis. So with Obi-Wan... We get some hypocrisy straight out of the gate. He's frustrated with the opulence of the Chancellor's Sanctum, but is totally cool with the massive edifice that is the Jedi Temple, and in fact, praises it. He thinks... He wondered if something more productive could have been done with the space in the Chancellor's office, and long since grown accustomed to the opulence and gave it little notice of the Jedi Temple. Like, okay, we're just going to be that blatant about our hypocrisy out the gate? Anything that the Chancellor does is kind of... Over, like, that's just a little bit extra, buddy. And the Jedi Temple, which is possibly the largest single structure on the planet other than the Senate Rotunda, which is the center of galactic democracy, is, like, alright, cool, this is chill. Like, there are probably fewer people who use the Jedi Temple than use the Senate Rotunda. Hey! Uh, Obi-Wan also passes judgment on clones for not having lived human lives. He's like, I don't get them. They don't have family, no mother or father, only training. Like, you know, a Jedi who has no mother or father and only their training. Weird. That I don't get it either. Uh, and, like, he's also totally okay with using this army. And, like, when he meets the clones, he's totally okay having one of them take his bag onto the... He uses one of the clones as a servant. This just feels wildly out of character for Obi-Wan, and we're back to Ranty, and I'm disengaging from the book more. Oh, boy. There's another moment where Obi-Wan is contemplating the morality of the clone army. Good to contemplate, because it's not moral, and you're supposed to be very moral. And asks himself if a recruited army is less ethical, even a conscripted one. At least the conscripts get the benefits of the civilization they're part of. His defense of the clone army is, I understand it's bad, but Jango Fett was a warrior and chose to go to war, so it can't be that bad to send his children to war. Yeah, no, that, what kind, the crap kind of justification is that? It's terrible. There's the thought, a Jedi is not a soldier. Then maybe let the soldiers make the military decisions? You're also clearly not a diplomat. You screwed that up. You decided to throw a holodrama when negotiations were already going your way. There's another scene where Obi-Wan is walking into a dangerous situation and he feels comforted by his lightsaber. That's right, his weapon. Not the force or his training or his theoretical moral high ground. His weapon. So clearly not a soldier. This isn't too far away from the other parallel between the Jedi and the clones. Once again, a clone brings up that the Jedi also didn't have a ton of choice. But Obi-Wan doubles down, saying he absolutely did have a choice to join the Jedi Order, and he couldn't see a galaxy where he doesn't join the Jedi. Which kind of sounds like he didn't have a choice or never really had any other options presented to him. So that's, that's real cool of you, Mr. Obi-Wan Hippocrobi. I don't know. I didn't I didn't land that. It's staying in. Anyways, Obi-Wan is also pretty chill with the whole slavery thing. Like he tells Nate straight up, "You cannot be free. You were born to fight in other men's wars with no hope of gain or glory." 
period. And just carries on the conversation. This is what he's fighting to support. This is what he believes in. However, Obi-Wan has a philosophy on fighting. It's what makes him such a good warrior. Never fight for gold, glory, or power. Fight for something you can believe in. Well, he just told Nate, well, later tells Nate chronologically in the book, that he is fighting for little or nothing. There's nothing that Nate can get out of this. There's no, I mean, no gain or glory, no freedom. You will forever be a slave until you die. You are an object to be used in this war. And he's just fine with it. It It's awful. Like... I guess this story is trying to do the war makes you make tough decisions, but we don't really ever see the costs. We don't see, like, people dying because of Obi-Wan's commands. In fact, we see people die when they ignore his commands. Uh, I guess Zutu dies, the clone who's not an R2 unit, um, and and then he kills some people. But we don't really linger on the feelings Obi-Wan has when he kills those guards. It's just not a developed point of the story. Also, I forgot about the propaganda tour that Kit Fisto went on with the tours, trying to recruit the youth of Cestus to fight for the Republic because their clone slave army isn't enough, but you use that army to show what you can get. Cool armor and a fun gun to play with or something? I don't know. Like, oh god, it's just disgusting. Also, apparently the clones use time-based system for seniority, at least with guerrilla armies. There's no evaluation of merit, which one, seems pretty contrary to how they were raised, and two, a good way to get a bad army. And clearly, we're back to ranting. Okay, apparently, Nate was lied to about Jango's death. He was told that it took a dozen Jedi to kill him. Who told him that? The Jedi weren't to fly. Nor said it took a dozen. And the only other people he'd have listened to are his non-clone officers or the Kaminoan traitors. Were they lied to by the Kaminoans to improve their confidence? That's stupid. Did rumors escape Geonosis? Like, did clones on Geonosis see, like, a dozen Jedi dead in the arena with, you know hundreds of droids and like actual tanks and thousands of geonosians and one dead jango fett and they're like ah clearly jango fett killed a dozen like what is that oh my god okay rant off there's some comparison between form one juyo which kit uses and form seven also known as vatpad and it's not a direct comparison it's just that form one is potentially dangerous to the user spiritually so kit believes that that sacrifice is worth it when kit is like yeah i know that it's dangerous to do this this makes obi-wan's estimation of him go up but also like that's the one conversation they have on balancing on the knife's edge between like sacrificing yourself and doing what's right like obi-wan has a more defensive fighting style whereas kit is much more aggressive and puts himself out there but like that that's the whole story of Shatterpoint. That's what it was explored so thoroughly and interestingly. What should a Jedi be prepared to sacrifice? To Mace, Depa, and Kit, they're like, I should be willing to, at the very least, play on the line of darkness, play on the line of losing myself to save others. My well-being is less than others. Um, To Obi-Wan, as he's presented in this book, He's willing to sacrifice his honor and the lives of clones. Those are the resources he has available to him, not his own morality. There could have been something interesting in the dynamic between Django and his clones, particularly the arcs, but to make that relationship more tense and dramatic, the one that he has with Sheik Atoll, Nate knows nothing about Django other than propaganda, so there isn't 
an opportunity for genuine reflection and evaluation. It gets close in so many places and just falls short every single time. Okay, let's let's move on to Asajj Ventress. Asajj is another big sticking point for me. We have a couple point of view chapters from her, and in one of her first she goes over her motivation. She was found and trained by a Jedi Master, Kai Narek, on Ratatek. He died on the planet helping her train, helping unite the planet against bloodthirsty warlords, and then she develops a hatred because she felt a hatred of the Jedi because she felt that they abandoned Kai, who saved her, and so they should have saved him. She believes in Dooku's rhetoric of the corruption and fall from grace of the Jedi, that they have forgotten their prerogative to defend order, not a corrupt and selfish regime, which is the Republic. And that's the extent of the philosophy that we get. Like, that's all that I get to really do analysis on. I think it's a wonderful, fascinating story, but there's so much more that we could explore here. How she perceives the Separatists as the lesser of two evils, perhaps, of her civil goals, of how the Jedi's actions in supporting a slave army, which is decidedly less morally justifiable than a droid army, I think, underlines their hypocrisy. Anything else would have been great. But instead, it's a lot of angst and screaming, I will kill you, Kenobi. Ah, oh, Kenobi is here. I must hunt him down. I will get him for my honor and glory. Even at the cost of her mission, both her and Dooku are more compelling characters when they're not comical villains, which, ironically enough, is mostly what they get in the comics. So maybe I'll read those one day and be satisfied with how Asajj Ventress turns out. In the fight with Kit Fisto and Obi-Wan, to continue on the Asajj point, something inside her quote-unquote breaks and she flees. And there's no explanation for it, no explicit explanation. It seems similar to how Quill broke and surrendered to Regent Durris, that both the Regent and Obi-Wan were prepared to die for their cause to be able to kill their opponent. And apparently, Ventress was able to, one, also infer that from Obi-Wan's change in stance underwater where they're both struggling to breathe. Two, was able to keep her ego in check from thinking she could outfight him because throughout the story she's like, oh yeah, I'm a better fighter than either of them. I can take the two of them on. And in fact, she was holding off both Fisto and Obi-Wan and so now she's just like, mm, I'm keep her ego in check. That's not happening for Massage Ventress. Three, does not feel like her mission was worth dying for, which is plausible. I don't think like, the mission on Cestus isn't important. Killing Obi-Wan might be worth it, but I think ideally she'd like to kill the Jedi and get a way to kill more Jedi. Uh, point four, understands and agrees with Obi-Wan's philosophy that you should only fight for a cause that you'd be willing to die for. Oh, and five, that she isn't willing to die for justice for her master, Kai Narek. Now, while Obi-Wan wasn't directly responsible for his death and I don't believe was on the council at the time of his death, like, there's a lot of reasons why she should go in, and instead she breaks and flees. And, like, she has sometimes fled in fear, but that's, like, generally not how she approaches combat. And I understand that she can't be killed here, because she's a character in the comics and the cartoons, and so must continue to exist. But it's just a very frustrating moment with a very cool character, like, there could have been a better reason, like, oh, I'm going to go complete my objective, or I'm going to go try to set things up to finish off both of you rather than finishing off one of you, and, like, leaving a window, like, she gets greedy for justice. That would have been better than something inside her broke. Somehow the Emperor returned. 
be specific in your writing, storytellers. Yeah. All right. To the miscellaneous notes. I think we're mostly done with the ranting. And so we're going to calm down. We're going to take a deep breath and just talk about some bits and bobs, some little trivia, some exciting things. All right. Dual Snoil interned in Gavarna, which is the same region as Harnkal. Also, his name is Lion's Blood, spelled backwards, another book by Stephen Barnes. I believe it's his most famous or iconic book. There's a light whip that appears several times in the story. It's handcrafted by Obi-Wan as a tool of deception so that mostly Kit can go around wielding and not appear to be a Jedi. The last light whip we saw was used by Githany, uh, one of the peers, I guess, of Darth Bane several a thousand years ago. Yeah. The... Republic Anthem is All Stars Burn as One, and I've included a link to that in the description if you want to check that out. There are several sentient or sapient native species which barely get touched on. They're the Dashta eels, which power the Jedi Killer droids. They supplied life-changing fungi to the Zating. There are the cave spiders, which fought a war with the Zating, so they're certainly sentient. And then the Zitsa which communicate in basic but that that's all i know about and they're like knee height that's it those don't really get any attention visiting maybe get every like if the republic d decides in favor of visiting and the hive gets back the land what's the republic going to do about these other native species ignore them probably that's what they do best another nit picked there's a line about how no clone has ever shirked duty, fled battle, or disobeyed. There's actually, it comes up in a couple places, once towards the beginning and once towards the end. Uh, I would like to present Exhibit Zero, the Null Arc Commandos, or Advanced Recon Commandos. Next question, nitpicked. One of the things this book does write is fascination of food. I talked about this. There's just so much talk of it, though, that I wanted to just bring it up again, like... He does talk about Kaminoan something steaks. I can't remember, like flantel steaks or something like that. It's like, okay, who fed the clones food and not just processed nutrients? But I guess maybe he had a surprise given to him by one of his trainers who wasn't Django, apparently. Oh, this is fun. Uh, the book doesn't get its own continuity right. In conversation with Obi-Wan before her fight with Quill, Regent Gamai Durris mentions Yoda by name. Then, in the conversation after the fight with the Council in the short story The Hive, there's talk of an unknown, unnamed Jedi. And the big reveal, spoiler, at the end of the story is that it was, in fact, Yoda. But that information was chronologically known, both to Zeting and Obi-Wan, before that encounter so it doesn't really make sense in the context of the pages of the book we do get further reference that feels like someone is trying to make the war a stalemate this coming from regent gamai durs and of course that is our friend palpatine just good to know that he's still puppeteering the whole war hasn't given up on that oh this is i want to call this out uh and then fully disregard it as any sort of canon like i hate that it's here and questioned if I should bring it up, but pretending it doesn't exist is worse. There's talk about Nate's understanding of women. He understands that there are two kinds of women, 
civilians to be protected or perhaps obeyed and treated with courtesy, and women who offered themselves to soldiers for credits and protection to be used and discarded. Those are the exact words, and it's disgusting. The least of which is that clones don't have camp followers, like they are on military ships and in military barracks, and everybody there is a clone. It's just not a thing that's shown up in any other Star Wars canon. And like the denigration of sex work, the idea that they're not civil, like they're civilians and sex workers. They're people to be treated with courtesy and sex workers. Their purpose is to be discarded. That's off. I don't need to go into why that's like that's just awful. And I'm gonna because of that like avoid anything else the author has written. There are a lot of other Star Wars authors whose other works I've read a lot of and really enjoyed. And I'm just not going to touch any of his work with a 10-foot pole. Um, but back to the nerdy, ranting, less societal frustrations coming out of my podcast ranting. There's reference to crash shields, which protect a vessel from physical impact, which brings up possibly for the first time explicitly that there are many different types of shielding. There are hyper shields, which protect the ship in hyperspace. There are micrometeorite shields, which protect against, you know, small meteorites, which is a similar type of crash shielding, atmospheric shields, energy shields, kinetic shields, all sorts of different types of shields. And at some point, I might try to compose a whole list of everything. Nate, who previously has been shown to not understand idioms or non-literal phrases, believes that the fungal medications of the Zeting, by way of the Dashta eels, would be a, quote, potential spice mine, which in English would be the idiom or metaphor of a gold mine. It doesn't make sense that he would use an idiom at all, much less that idiom in particular, because spices, generally speaking, are non-medicinal drugs. It just feels really weird and out of character for him to be like, oh yeah, this magic wonder food and super drug is kind of like cocaine. Like, if we, we could just make so much money off of that. It, this is somebody who's never lived on and off a military base that is comprised wholly of fully obedient clones who don't really do drugs or party or do anything. Like, even the clones who do party and have fun, looking at you, Omega, they don't drink. I Even celebrating a successful mission on Triple Zero, when people are trying to buy him drinks, the least responsible member of Omega, Fee, turns down drinks and is just like, yeah, I'm going to drink like some good taste and juice. I'm not going to have booze because I'm always on call and I'm responsible. Like, I don't understand why he's like, oh yeah, this is a spice mine. <sighs> I write deep breath, miscellaneous notes, calm, chill. Fighting a Jedi killer droid. Obi-Wan sees where he can hit it to break it. A shatter point, if you will. Potentially a reference to the previous story we read. Glee Anselm music is mentioned. It's the Natolan homeworld, homeworld of Kit Fisto. It's multi-harmonic and nigh impossible to perform by anybody who's not a Natolan. Part of me thinks of it as like multiple levels of like math rock layered together, except it sounds harmonic. I don't understand music though, so we're just gonna move on. There are some elements of discussion of honor among clones, but I'm honestly just kind of over this book and I don't really want to dig into it because they're relatively shadow. It's like a line or two here or there about how clones only have their honor and that honor is a fragile thing, 
which would be an interesting exploration if they went into depth on it, but they just spent so many pages on Shikatol and Nate, and oh, Obi-Wan does admit to an unasked question from Shika, though, that he has either loved or loved and lost. He also says, none of us is in control of our heart, and that could have been a very interesting story, but we only get the one line three pages from the end of the book. Finally, we have a variation on the funereal rites for clones. The Mandalorian version, as portrayed in True Colors by Karen Travis, is translated from Mandalorian to basic as, I'm still alive, you're dead, I'll remember you, so you're eternal. The version here is, from water we're born, in fire we die, we seed the stars. They have similar elements, short and to the point, not shirking from the fact of death or that it's an inevitable part of life. They also both have an element of eternity. In The Mandalorian, there's the obvious, so you're eternal, and in the alternate, seeding the stars, which will last for millennia and bring back new life, at least metaphorically. If you enjoyed this book, I don't know, try Ruins of Dantooine, which I wouldn't actually recommend to anyone and kind of dread rereading when we get there. Maybe Cloak of Deception. It has deception in the title, and the other word in the title starts with a C, just like this one. Honestly, just read Shadowpoint if you haven't. It examines the ideas of how far Jedi can and should go, and how to navigate dishonesty and deception and the costs of war in much, much more compelling ways. Uh, I think the Black Fleet Crisis better explores diplomacy. Truce at Bakura actually probably is a good exploration if you like this sort of politicky thing. If you like Nate's story, the Republic Commando books are a better option because it explores the clones in what I perceive to be a more accurate perspective. Watching the Clone Wars TV show isn't out of the question either, although there's a lot of chaff to work through there. Before wrapping things up, though, I do want to do a quick breakdown of the bonus story, The Hive. Immediately after Regent Gamai Duris' fight with Quill, she revealed that Cestus Cybernetics had been lying to them. The Council's taken aback and asks Obi-Wan for his help with another matter. This happens on page, like, 180 of the 400-ish page book, so it's, like, right smack dab in the middle, and there's this 40- or 50-page short story that occurs during the events of this novel. Unlike how this played out with Darth Maul Shadowhunter and Darth Plagueis, I don't like how this plays out. Uh, the events of Shadowhunter support Plagueis, and the events of Plagueis support Shadowhunter. Here, the events of the Hive kind of directly contradict the events of the Cestus Deception. They don't... They're written by the same person, unlike Shadowhunter and Darth Plagueis. These are written by the same person, and they don't fit together as nicely. In any case, when... Let's actually talk about, like, the plot and stuff before I get too angry. When the plague struck, the last of the royal eggs were hidden away and locked in a vault. Then, everyone who knew how to enter the vault died during the plague. Then, the Zating, who live close to the vault, haven't been in contact for a century, so nobody knows what's going on down there. Then, the creators and engineers of the vault all died when their planet was struck by a comet, and... The comet, you know, destroyed the planet, so there are no records because apparently they don't have access to the cloud. Oh, also there's a biological imperative that the Zating slavishly follow the royals, so if baddies get their hands on the eggs, they'll be able to control the rest of the hive. The, as a defense mechanism for this, there's a three tries and you're out system in place. It kills the person and kills the eggs. Also, any tampering with the system can kill the eggs. 
Obi-Wan heads out with Jessen, a Zating warrior, to enter the vault. Jessen's three brothers slash comrades have all attempted the vault run before and didn't return, so presumed dead. The two manage to reach the vault, fighting off and running past hordes of cannibalistic Zating, leaving past hungering worms, and get to the security station. As a note, Zating communicate primarily through scent and sound, so the security device detects pheromones. It looks for fear, guilt, sorrow, etc., when the security precautions are failed. It's essentially a trick of, we're going to tell you that you've destroyed the eggs and that you're going to die, and we're going to see how you feel. And if you are worried about yourself, eh, if you're worried about the safety of the eggs, if you feel like you have failed, that's a good thing. We're going to traumatize you as our security measure. Uh, which is cool, but it's also a dumb system, because if you know that that's the system to unlock the eggs, you're not going to have those feelings. And, like, if you don't know the system, after you make your two attempts, you're going to be like, well, I don't want to die, and I'm clearly not able to, like, I've failed twice, I have no reason to believe I will be more successful in my next attempt. I don't want the regent to die, so I'm just going to back off. Which, maybe killing the user isn't the best part of the plan, but then I guess you could have a bad agent just run in, answer the questions wrong, and kill the eggs on purpose, and so they're not actually safe, and so you want to kill the person. But, like, all you need to do is just get one person to be your martyr. I don't know. It's just not a great security system, in my opinion. Uh, they do get the eggs, though. Jessen and Obi-Wan have some tension throughout because Jessen is more conservative. He doesn't believe outsiders should be involved at all. Jessen has a view of how things should happen, and Obi-Wan isn't a part of that. As part of their mission, they went through a hall of heroes, statues erected in massive scale, which is weird, again, for a species that communicates primarily through sound and scent rather than sight. But one of those statues is Yoda from 150 years ago. And at that point, after Obi-Wan has saved his life several times and helped him get through the test of heart to get to the royals, Jessen accepts that maybe Jedi can do good. Uh -huh. And all this happens in the middle of the Cestus Deception, which makes it even more ludicrous that Obi-Wan has to resort to holodrama actions and terrorism to make progress. But that's the way it's written. Anyways... Next time will be Mash, I mean MedStar Battle Surgeons featuring Bear Sophie and perhaps some other returning characters. Ooh, mysterious. If you liked this episode and want to hear more of my ramblings, please be sure to check that box to like, subscribe, favorite, or whatever it is your app calls it, and check back in next time. You can contact me on Twitter at Jedi underscore archives or email me at podcast at fatelfgames.com. I'm Jonah, and the archives are incomplete.